Our uh, scripture reading is from Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father God, we thank you for, uh, again, for this time. God, we thank you for this season as we enter into, um, God, these, these days that, that, uh, we look to and, and remember and acknowledge, um, and focus our attention on the ways that, um, you and your providence have moved throughout the history of the church. God, this, at this time, we look to, um, that era, uh, that is known as, as the Protestant Reformation. Father, we thank you for, um, God, the way that your spirit moved in that time, um, how you uh, uh, made yourself um, known to, to certain uh, key uh, figures in that time, God, and that through their faithfulness, um, through their clear teaching of your word, God, the, the church uh, and the lost uh, were reminded of the great truths um, of the faith, God, the, the good news and what makes the good news good news, that we are saved not of our own works, um, not of our own power, God, not of our own merit, um, but because of the merit and the works and the goodness and righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, God, we thank you for the ways uh, that, uh, that those truths were clarified um, and remembered, God, that they have changed um, the way that we uh, believe God that they have that they have focused our attention on these things too and given us a right understanding uh, of what your scriptures teach God we thank you for your providence in history we thank you um, knowing that you were the one um, even in these times of wh- where we where we zoom in on these these great events and and great men and women of the faith but God we know that it is your greatness that is really on display um, that even in those times, it is it is your truth, your son, your gospel um, that are being remembered, uh, and that people are turning to and living lives of of service and sacrifice. Um, God, in honor to you, we pray that we would be the same kind of people, um, that we would live in holiness. God, that we would live as people who uh, understand. Uh, who we are in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done for us. God, that we would always give you glory um, for the goodness and greatness of the good news. Um, We thank you, God. We ask that as we open your word that we would understand this rightly, a passage that is is, um, uh, incredibly deep um, and has so many facets, so many things that we could zoom in on uh, and, and talk about, God. 
And we ask that you would do that even beyond the scope of this message as, as you let this word bore into us um, over, over the coming days and weeks. And that I pray that everyone here would hold on to this passage uh, and, and return to it often um, to know the great salvation that you provided. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, so as I've said several times now, today is um, what's called Reformation Sunday. Okay. And so technically, Reformation Day is October 31st. It's the same day as, as Halloween, the day that we celebrate Halloween. Um, it is All Hallows Eve. It is the night before the next day, November 1st, which is All Hallows Day um, or All Saints Day. And so typically in the history of the church, they, that All Hallows Eve was a day of, of, a, of celebration too. But it also happens to be the day that Martin Luther in the year 1517 nailed his 95 theses or his 95 points of contention um, to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany. And that, even though it, it's, it, it didn't necessarily make a flashpoint immediately, but it is the symbolic day of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, right? And out of that Reformation came the rediscovery of all these core truths of the Bible. And, and I say rediscovery because sometimes people will misunderstand and think, oh, well, the Reformation had this new way of thinking about these things. And that was not the case. It was a remembering. Okay. These were, these were truths that had been taught for centuries in the church, but how the church had, uh, drifted away from. And it was people remembering those truths. So we're going to talk about that just a little bit more in a second. But these five solas, they call them, of the Reformation, um, particularly pertaining to salvation, the idea that our salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ, to the glory of God, according to the scriptures alone. And, uh, it is that doctrine of by faith alone that we are, that we are turning our attention to tonight. And so our text again is Romans chapter three. If you're not there already, you'll want to turn there. Um, verses 21 through 26 of Romans chapter three has been described by some commentators as the center of the Bible. Right now, obviously it is not the center in terms of of page numbers or, or word counts or anything like that. But in terms of the main message, the main focus of the scriptures and the biblical story, uh, the thing that the scriptures are working towards, man, the, the message in Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26 is, is, I don't think it's wrong to say there are, there is no more important place in all the scriptures than, than these passages. Okay. Uh, it is central to, to the message of the scriptures and our understanding of these things. All right. And so again, I'm going to read these passages over as we go and we're going to build through them. And, and along the way, we're mainly going to also tell the story of, of Martin Luther's um, uh, rediscovery of what these these uh, texts and what these words meant and how they applied to our lives. So it starts out verse 21. But now. Meaning in our current era, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what has happened because of these things? But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. All right. So now here's the key. What does that phrase mean, the righteousness of God? Because it was that righteousness of God phrase that all of the, of Luther's re revelations, um, pivoted on 
um, during his own lifetime. So when Luther read that phrase, the righteousness of God, it was an ugly truth to him. All right. When he read the words righteousness of God, it was, it was not something good. It was something that he saw as, as ugly. Why? How, how can that be the case? Well, like some of you might, when you read that, you might say, well, what does the righteousness of God even mean? Well, Luther assumed, and maybe like some of you might assume, that the righteousness of God meant the moral uprightness and perfection of God, right? It was, it was his perfection. And the deal was is that when Luther looked at that perfection, that the fact that God is perfect, and then God creates man, and we are held to this moral standard that God has set, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a standard that we can never attain, right? No matter how hard we try, we may try to live in alignment with God and His Word, but we never can do it. We never can meet up to His perfect character and perfect law. We don't do it because we can't do it. And when we can't, then God punishes us with eternal hell, right? Luther didn't know how to love a God like that, right? In, in Luther's mind, and I think probably in the mind of many people who, who um, do not understand the scriptures rightly, God is a bully. He's basically like that big older kid at your elementary school. And he's stronger than everybody else and bigger than everybody else. And he comes and challenges younger kids to a fight a fight that they, he knows that they could never win. And when they don't live up to the challenge, then he pummels them into the ground for their effort. Let me put it in Luther's own words. This is what Luther said. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain by the pain of the gospel. And also the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. And thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Right? And so, so Luther even says, I saw the gospel as bad news, right? Because all the gospel did was reminded me of how awesome God is and how worthless I am and how all I had to look forward to was failure in hell. God seemed neither just nor kind to Martin Luther. And here's the thing. Luther isn't wrong about our predicament. All right? Look at that next verse, verse 23 in our text. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem is, is Luther's experience at a, at, from one viewpoint, is accurate. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. All of us cannot, do not, meet the standard that God has set for us. Anybody who looks at their own life and heart and mind 
honestly recognizes that. That no matter how good you try to be, one, you never even live up to that. And two, even the good that you do is mingled with, with sin in various ways. And so the self-righteous might admit and say, okay, well, fine, Ash, I'm, I, I may not be perfect, but I'm certainly better than most people. And certainly that should be good enough for God. The answer is it's not. What does he say in that passage? There's no distinction. There's no distinction for these, these things. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And so whether you think you're a 95% good person or a 5% good person, God says there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so again, the, the angst, you could say, that Luther felt was a right angst. No matter how hard he tried to obey, he would miss the mark of God's holiness. Now, something had been going on in the world in general during this time, okay? For about a century or so, particularly in, in the country of Italy, um, or, or what we know today as Italy. And it was a movement called the Renaissance, all right? And, and the word Renaissance comes from a Latin word that means rebirth. All right. And what had been going on, what the Renaissance had been about was that the European world was sort of remembering um, and, and waking up to and having a new renewed reverence and and fascination with the classical world of antiquity. That is the world of the ancient Greeks and the world of the ancient Romans, their, their cultures, their civilizations, and their writings, and their philosophy, and their arts, and all these things like that. And so the, the, the European world was sort of going, man, that stuff was really cool. Um, we should look into that stuff again. Now, as one of the outworkings of that Renaissance movement, guess what happened? People started caring about Greek culture, and they also started caring about the Greek language again which meant that educated people in, in Europe started reading the Bible, not in the Latin that had been handed down to them for centuries, but in the original language that the Bible was written in, which was Greek. And so as Luther studied the, the, the book of Romans in its original Greek, a realization came to it. And it's a passage that's very closely connected to the one that we're looking at, but it's a little earlier. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and you can flip there real quick if, if, if it's easy for you. He read in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, for in it, the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right. So the realization that he came to had to do with the difference in the way the word for righteousness sits in the Latin language versus the way the word righteousness is in the Greek language. Okay. Because this is what had happened. The Roman word for righteousness or justification, they're the same, the same word in, in both the language is justificare. Okay, justificare. You can hear you can hear the sounding of it. It's the same place we get our word for justice and, and our English word for things like that, right? The Roman word was justificare, which meant to make something righteous. Okay, it's making something righteous. Okay, and so Luther thought people become righteous and then they live by faith. That's what it was talking. The righteous shall live by faith. 
God makes people righteous, they are righteous, and then they live out a life of faith. But Luther was basically saying, that's my problem. I'm not righteous, right? I know I'm not righteous. I keep on living in a way that is not righteous. No matter how hard I try, I can't be righteous. And therefore, how can I live out this life of faith that God has called us to? But then what happened is Luther, when he went to the Greek, he realized something. That the original word in the Greek is obviously not eustophare because it's not a, that's a Latin word. The, the original word in the Greek is dikaios or dikaiosune. Right? And there's a difference in what that word means from what had been translated to in the Latin. The difference is, is this. It's not talking about the righteousness that God possesses in himself. It's not talking about his moral perfection. It's not even talking about exactly um, his making people righteous. But that Greek word, dikaios, uh, it's about the righteousness that is counted to people. The righteousness that is attributed to someone, um, more precisely reckoned to someone, right? Ascribed to that person. So it is not the righteous person who lives by faith, but the one who is counted righteous through faith. Okay. You see the distinction, right? It's not a righteous person who is, uh, the righteousness of God is not the righteousness of his character that then I live up to by my actions, and then live a life of faith. No, the righteousness of God is the righteousness that he gives me, that he counts towards me, that he reckons to my account, a righteousness that is not mine, that I don't do, right? It's not a righteousness that I have. It's a righteousness that I have been given. Luther called it an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that sits outside of us. So your rightness with God is not a function of you. It's a function of somebody else's righteousness, an alien outside of yourself righteousness, a righteousness that the Bible says God gives us by grace. He doesn't give it to us based on something that we have done. He gives it to us based on grace. And here's what happened. It's a great line from Luther. He says this. He says, when I realized what that meant, when I realized what the righteousness of God in the gospel Meant, he says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates, right? Most of us understand, most people understand that this is the salvation moment for Luther. And what's fascinating is this. This is probably taking place two years after uh, Wittenberg, after the, the 95 Theses, okay? If you go back and look at the 95 Theses, most of the things on it, are issues of corruption, right? They're Luther saying, hey, Catholic Church, you're doing some pretty messed up and skeezy things. There's not a whole lot in there about the distinctions of theology, about the recognition of justification by faith. And the reason for that is probably Luther hadn't happened. That hadn't happened to him yet. He hadn't been saved yet. He was already questioning the Catholic Church, but then two years later, through his study of the word to find out what was really true, he comes across this realization that we are justified by faith. That righteousness, that alien righteousness is Jesus' righteousness. It is a righteousness that he lived out, he paid up, he accomplished, and then it is given to us and given freely. And so then Paul shows us three aspects of that, that new righteousness that has been given to us in verse 24 and 25. Three clauses 
three pairs of ideas in there. That we are justified by grace, that we have redemption in Jesus Christ, that we have propitiation by his blood. All right? Verse 24, you are justified by his grace as a gift. Okay? You are treated as right with God as a gift. So we talk about it from now and again. What does justified mean? What does justification mean? It means what it sounds like it means. It means just as if I had never sinned. God counts me just as if I had never sinned. Is it true that I've never sinned? Nope. I have sinned lots, okay, and will continue to. But God counts me like I've never sinned. He counts me like it never happened. Just right below um, that, he says, and it is, this justification is a gift of its of his grace, right? It's not something we earned. It's not something we deserve, but it is given from the gracious heart of the Father. So we are justified by it. We are also redeemed by this through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does redemption mean? It means to be bought back. There's a debt of justice that has accrued because of our sin. And because it says, just down in the passage a little bit, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? It means he had not given us what we deserve yet. He had not inflicted us with the judgment that we deserved. He had not ignored it. He hadn't let us off the hook for it, right? But he had he had held off on the judgment. But we still owed a debt, the way a man who has sold himself into slavery owes a debt. And until somebody comes and pays that debt, there's no way that we can be free. There's no way that we can be bought out of slavery to sin and into a life of freedom. Jesus pays the debt. And his payment is applied to our account. It's reckoned to our account. And then lastly, God put Jesus forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a complicated word, but it could, we could say it this way. It means atoning appeasement. It takes into account that we have not just created a legal issue with an impartial judge. Okay. But we've done that. We've sinned against God and he as judge of the world. Now we are before his court, right? You could say, but it's not just that we haven't just offended the judge. We have, or, 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 or broken the law against a judge, but there is a personal issue, a personal affront to our father and to our king. We have angered God by our sin. And not, um, not only does that offense have to be removed, which is a word we call expiation, but also we have to do something to appease and assuage God's wrath, which is propitiation proper. And so a propitiation is appeasing God's wrath by making a restitution for sin. And that's exactly what Jesus does in his atoning sacrifice of himself. His blood is the, the payment for the appeasement of God. Okay, so so all that you might say, man, Ash, that was a whole lot of like big theological sounding words and I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about. Put it in a sort of general context of, of something that would happen today. This is what God has done for us. You need the charges. You committed a crime, and you need the charges to not go on your permanent record, all right, to not be counted against you in the future. That's justification. You need somebody to post bail for you, right, to get you out of prison that you were in because of your, because of your uh, breaking the law. That's redemption. 
And then you need somebody to not only pay your fines for what you have done to make restitution, but you also need somebody who will reconcile the broken relationships that you have caused because of the crime that you did. That's propitiation. All right. And guess what? In our world, it would be probably likely that a number of different people would perform all of those different tasks. But in faith, Jesus has done all of them and more. Jesus has proven himself to be a multifaceted and all sufficient savior. Jesus does all of it, saving us at every aspect of our need. And that is beyond fathoming, right? It's the kind of thing that is so easy for us to just kind of go, oh yeah, Jesus saves us. That's, that's why we're here. That's what Christianity is about, man. But to recognize all the things that Jesus has done for us, all the ways that he has made us um, clean and right and, and brought us back to the Father is beyond fathoming. There's a song that I love and, and the chorus goes, it may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. Right? It's not too good to be true because this is what the Bible promises for us, that Jesus has done all of these things. And so then the question immediately comes to us, I mean, how do I access that? Jesus has offered us everything. How can I get a hold of that? It says God has given it freely of his grace. This offer is so good, man, I would do anything to receive it. If you, if you listed these things out for me and said, man, he is going to justify you and redeem you and he is going to expiate and propitiate and adopt and glorify and bring you into his kingdom, all these things you would say, I'll do anything. I'll do anything I have to do. And we look around the religions of the world and what do we see? We see all these things that every other religion in the world tries to accomplish to, to win these things from their God or, or, or their understanding of things, right? So they'll say, man, I would do anything, any kind of ceremonial righteousness you want me to do, God. You want me to do a pilgrimage? You want me to get baptized? You want me to get circumcised? Communion, membership, church attendance, I'll do anything. I'll do anything that you've asked me to do in terms of a ceremonial act. I'll, I'll, I'll join whatever group you want me to. I'll, I'll join a denomination or a sect or a group or a subculture. I'll do whatever it takes. Just tell me which one I need to be a part of. I'll believe any theological teaching. I just want to write understanding. If you, if it's reformed or orthodox or evangelical or whatever, it doesn't matter. God, you just tell me what I'm supposed to believe and I'll believe it if that will get me this thing that you're talking about. I'll do any action. I'll get excited. I'll be sold out. I'll be for the right causes. Faithful service. You want me to be a priest? I'll be a priest. You want me to be a monk? I'll go be a monk. If you want me to be a missionary, I'll go be a missionary. If you'll just give me this salvation that you promised. And finally, I'll do anything morally that you've asked me to. I'll pick any legalistic standard. I'll do any um, level of, of right action. If you don't want me to drink, I won't drink. If you don't want me to chew, I won't chew. If you don't want me to go with girls who do, I won't go with girls who do, right? I'll do anything you ask me to, God, if I can access this salvation. And then what does Jesus tell us? What does Paul tell us? Three times in just this little section, you don't have to do any of those things. Now, the merits and the goodness of some of those things that we might said are, are a different discussion. But he says none of those things are the way that you receive the salvation that God has provided. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, to be received by faith. Verse 26, to the one who has faith in Jesus, right? These things come to us. Not by any works of our own, not by any merit, 
that we have, but by trusting in the one who has done them in our place already. And so maybe there's an illustration there, and I, and I share it from time to time about the way someone saves somebody who is drowning, right? And so I don't know if you've ever been pulled out of water that you were drowning in. I have. Uh, I was a little kid, and I got into a pool, and I didn't realize where the drop-off was, and I went out into that, didn't know how to swim very well, and immediately started sinking and was and was paddling and trying to get out. And and a cousin of mine, who was who was a teenager at the time, I was just a little kid, a cousin of mine, Dove in, grabbed me, and pulled me to the side. Okay, and and you you know what happens. Okay, so the way you've probably seen it when somebody saves somebody or pulls them out of the water, you you go and you grab them around their neck and you basically kind of get them in a headlock, right? And then and then the the person who's doing the saving with the other hand paddles their way in and is kicking. Okay, what's that person supposed to do? All right, help paddle and flail and kick as much as they can, you know, to help in the process of being saved? And the answer is no, that's not what you do. In fact, it actually impedes um, the, 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 the process, right? So much so that I have been told that sometimes they tell lifeguards the best way to save somebody who's drowning is to let them pass out first and then bring them in unconscious and then resuscitate them. Because if you go in and try to save them sometimes and they're freaking out and flailing, they'll actually end up pulling you down with them, right? So what happens is this. The way to be saved is what? The way to be saved is to submit to the person who is saving you, to just say, I'm going to trust you to get me to shore, and I'm not going to contribute anything to it because I can't contribute anything to it. If I tried to contribute, it would actually hinder the whole process. And you know what? There's a little bit of that that's terrifying. Because again, if you've ever been pulled out of the water and you're being drugged in a headlock right after you've almost drowned and all that's sticking up is your face like that, it's kind of scary. It's scary to put that much hope and trust in another person to get you to the shore. But that's exactly what the scriptures tell us to do with Jesus. They say you can't contribute to your own salvation. You can't save yourself in any way. All you can do is trust in Jesus Christ to save you. That's it. The best thing you can do is stop paddling. The best thing you can do is stop kicking. The best thing you can do is let the rescuer do his job. That's faith. It's giving up the frustrating impossibility of our own righteousness, right? And of, of trying to be right with God and just letting God make us right with himself through the perfect life of Jesus Christ. God does this to not only save people, right, but to demonstrate his glory in all of these things. And that's how we, we come to the end of this passage as we close it. Paul emphasizes this over and over again, both in chapter 1 of Romans, again here, verse 25, the second half of 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is one of my favorite phrases in all of the scriptures, that God shows himself by the gospel to be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
So what does that mean? What is he saying? He's saying the glory that is revealed, that we come to realize in the gospel, is not just, it's not that God isn't perfect, right? We started at the beginning of the thing, and we're talking about God's perfection. We're not saying he isn't that, right? He totally is perfect, right? Luther was right in the beginning. He is still pure. He is still holy and exalted and set apart and altogether righteous. And that righteous is a, I hesitate to say it this way, it's a terrible righteousness. It is the righteousness that we talk about every week in our, in our, uh, um, the order of our service, right? That the, the righteousness that Isaiah saw when he stood before the throne of God and said, woe is me for I am ruined. For I have, I am a man of unclean lips and I have dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, right? When, when Isaiah stands before the awesome glory and perfection of God, he doesn't think, wow, this is really cool. It's cool to see God so glorious. He says, I'm done for. I have no hope. There's nothing I can do to make myself right. The, the, the glory of God is going to destroy me. And he's right. And Luther was right. But that's not the end of, of the passage. It's not the end of Isaiah's encounter, and it's not the end of ours. Because the gospel shows us that God's righteousness, right, his awesomeness is not only in his moral perfection, that he is just, right? He is just, but it's not just that. He is not just just. He is also the justifier. That means... Not only is he morally perfect, but he is the God who, from his fatherly love, fatherly mercy, counts other people as righteous as well and draws them into himself as the justifier, the one who makes people right. And how does he do it? Not by works, not by our merit, but by a free gift of grace in the merit of Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one who counts other people as righteous. That is the thing that changed the world, right? That was the the realization that changed everything. And it wasn't a new insight, just like we said. One of the cool things is that Luther was kind of like, am I crazy? Is, 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 am I right about this? And then when he went back to the great church father, Augustine, he read the exact same things in the works of Augustine, that Augustine had already said these things and taught these things, but the church had forgotten them over the centuries somehow. And so again, Luther was saying, I'm not a revolutionary. I'm a Renaissance man. All right. I'm not a revolutionary. I'm not trying to overturn everything. I'm trying to get us back to where we're supposed to be, and we have been before. To the realizations that the early church had, that we are saved not by our merit, not by our contribution, but solely saved by the grace of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that we receive that by faith alone. What's cool about this passage, for one thing, is that you pretty much see all five of the solas right there in that passage. You see grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone. The only one that's missing is Scripture alone, but since it is the Scripture and we're counting on it, then that's the, it's Scripture alone in itself, right? It, it doesn't tell us to believe in Scripture alone, but we are doing that by by trusting in the other four in the Scriptures, right? What a cool passage. Um, and something that I, 
I hope we turn back to. I hope we remember because it's so easy for us to feel like these truths are passe, part and parcel of just how we are as Christians, right? Of course, Jesus died for us. Of course, these things are true. It's no big deal. But let me tell you, this is the good news that will change the world. This is the hope and truth that can change people's hearts because the whole rest of the world doesn't think this way. The whole rest of the world assumes, it, it tries to mitigate something in each one of the pieces. It says, no, I'm not as bad as I, I, I think I am. My sins aren't really that bad, therefore God won't judge me. Or maybe God just isn't as holy as I, I think he is, and so therefore he's not going to be that offended by the things that I've done. Or that I've lived a pretty good life, and I've tried my best, and I've done what I can, and I think God's going to accept that. But all those things are oppressive. All of those things bear down on us because just like Luther, in the back of our head, we're always going, but it's not good enough. Like, I know it's not good enough. That's why I keep on getting worried. I keep on striving. I keep on, I keep on flailing. I keep on kicking against the truth that could save me. And that truth is, is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Christ alone, by grace alone, faith alone. Amen? I don't really have an ending other than that, right? Only that we would know that truth, that we would tell the world that truth, and we would live in light of that truth every day. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and pray that very thing, um, that God would use this truth in our lives, that when we share with our friends about the faith, that we would not share about any of those other things that we said, that we would not be trying to win somebody to a denomination or win somebody to... Uh, a way of thinking or win somebody to a morality or win somebody to coming to our church. All those things are good and they're good and right things and beneficial things in each one of them, but none of them save us. The thing that saves us is knowing that Jesus Christ has died in our place. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your servant, Martin Luther. God, we thank you for the other uh, heroes of the Reformation who came and and added um, insight and and weight to to the the truths that that Martin Luther sparked um, in his time. God, we thank you for uh, the way your Spirit has moved among uh, those men and women. Um, Father, we we. We cannot imagine where we might be, the, the darkness that we might be living in, um, the, the frustrated striving that never amounts to anything um, that we would be a part of were it not for, uh, God, the way that you showed um, your truth, the way that you revealed your gospel um, to Martin Luther and, and men of his time. Father, we thank you for the way you move in history. Um, we pray for the same kind of revival even in our own day. Guys, we look at the, at the mess that we are in in the midst of our culture, in the way uh, we think and believe. God, the, the absence of, of uh, not only uh, who your son is, but, but any type of, of realization of what he has done for us. Um, Father, we are ripe. Um, for a similar reformation, God, that our, our world languishes um, in a very similar way to the way it did uh, just before the reformation. Father, you, you providentially uh, used, used technology in that time to, to explode 
the gospel onto the world. Um, God, we are in the midst of another technological um, revolution right now, God. And we pray that you would use those things um, to take your gospel to the world, um, that people would know you and your son rightly because of these things. But God, above all, we pray for revival. We pray that your spirit would move among us, that they would move, it would move in our church, that it would move in our community, in our state, in our country, and the world, and that you would call your people uh, back, um, that you would... God, make them realize the great truth um, of your gospel and that people would turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance and be saved. Uh, We thank you, God. We thank you that this is a truth that we know that we have received by faith and that you have um, welcomed us into your family. We ask that for others uh, in in our community as well. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
gospel shall prevail. For we know in Christ all things are possible. For all who call upon his name, we will stand as children of the Reformation Day or, or soon to be Reformation Day. Um, hope you have a good week and uh, we'll see each other next week and it will actually be All Saints Day and we're going to do kind of what we've we've done for the last few years is, is we're going to look at a passage of scripture and and a little bit like what we did today, tell the story of a, um, of, of a saint um, of the church um, as we explore uh, a passage of scripture. And so hope to see you next week. Um, until then, uh, hear this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.